0: First of
1: all, um, welcome. Well, thank you very much.
0: And thank you for doing this because you allow me to fulfill an ambition to preach sitting down, which was the ancient
1: church practice. It's fantastic. It still is in some countries, you know. In Russia, when I go there, I would normally speak sitting down. Really? Um, Oh, yes. Would
0: the congregation be sitting or standing? Sitting. Sitting. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's a very civilized way of doing things. John, before we just go to to look at God's Word, for the benefit of those who don't know you, and I'm sure most people here now do, but can you please explain who you are?
1: Well, I come originally from Northern Ireland, and my ancestors are Scottish. Like like most people from Northern Ireland. They were driven out of Scotland over some petty fight, I think, and those of us who could swim Ended up in Northern Ireland, (laughs) and uh, we survived. But I suppose I'm third or fourth generation evangelical Christian in my family. But my parents were wonderful people because in a sectarian country, they were Christians without being sectarian. Mm -hmm. And I didn't grow up with the baggage that many of my fellow countrymen have grown up with. The second thing, which was quite unusual in Northern Ireland. They allowed me to think. Mm -hmm. They gave me space to develop my own thinking so that when I got to Cambridge, I didn't throw my faith away like so many of my contemporaries. Mm -hmm. And so I've had a great model in them. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of background. uh, your question said who I was. Uh, are you thinking in terms of function or being? Or I Never think... interview
0: a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think uh, that was really what I wanted to know. But of course, you're also a distinguished scientist. What, what exactly is your title, actually? I, I always misquote it.
1: I'm Professor of Pure Mathematics. Uh, in the University of Oxford, and I'm also fellow in mathematics and philosophy of science at Green Templeton College, which is one of the largest, if not the largest, graduate colleges in Oxford with over 500 students. And the philosophy of science bit is really to allow me academically to pursue the kind of thing that I was saying yesterday. I've always been interested in the relationship between science in general, my faith in God and philosophy, the big questions. And there's a reason for that. And if I explain the reason, it will help you to understand where I'm coming from, as distinct from Northern Ireland, although that has a lot to do with it. When I came to Cambridge last century, a long time ago, in 1962, In my first week as a student, someone said to me, do you believe in God? And then he said, oh, sorry, I forgot you're Irish. Um, (laughs) All you people believe in God, and you fight about it. I'd heard that before, of course, but somehow studying mathematics in one of the best universities in the world made me think, what really is behind all of this? Could it be that my faith in God is simply a product of Irish genetics, heredity, environment, my parents, believers, my grandparents, and so far as I know, their parents, all believers. And so I decided on that day, a very deliberate decision, that instead of simply reading books, and I'd read many books before I got to Cambridge, I would talk to people and I would deliberately go out of my way to befriend people who did not share my Christian worldview. I've been doing it ever since. Indeed, I looked round the... I can remember doing this so well. I looked round the group of mathematicians, and I decided that anybody with a beard was probably likely to be an atheist or an agnostic. (laughs) I'm having a look round right now. (laughs) Oh, i just noticed. i just noticed. I'm sorry.
0: I I must be an agnostic. Oh, and he's got to be an atheist. (laughs)
1: And sure enough, the only man with a beard turned out to be an agnostic. And we started talking. And after two years, he became a Christian and is now a very eminent professor of mathematics. But that showed me that worldview is not fixed yeah. and that it's possible to change on the basis of dialogue and discussion. Yeah. And that was very important. For me. So, in those early days, I began sharing my faith. I, I, I thought, well, if this is true, how could you possibly keep it to yourself? And I suppose that move to befriend people who did not share my worldview led to my going to Germany, learning the language, and then going into Eastern Europe, where I travelled for 25 years at least during the Cold War, going many times a year talking to people, and then when the wall fell, and I helped to knock it down, gently, but I did help, um, going to Russia and meeting with people who, whose whole education system had been thoroughly impregnated with atheism. And that's why today I'm fairly passionate about these things, because I've seen their effect not simply in this country, but in countries where they were part of the fundamental ideology. And that's why I think it's so important what is being done in this building. Because the ideology of East and West in terms of Europe is not all that much distinct at the philosophical level. I mean, we used to joke in the days of the Cold War that there was materialism on both sides. The only difference was we had the material. So that is part of my background. So I've constantly exposed my faith in God to the opposition. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing that Sola stands for. If our Christian faith is true, this is what we all need to be engaged in at our different levels, of course. Yeah. Now, what a lot of people don't know,
0: um, and this is my last question before we, we turn to the Bible, but, um, is that the idea for Solas, part of the genesis of it was a conversation that you and I had when you talked about the different ways that we were involved in apologetics. I mean, you said 1962 you went to Cambridge. 1962 I came into this world. <laughs> so I'm obviously very much.
1: Really? You know, are you as young as that, I am, uh, I'm uh, Yes, I see.
0: <laughs> I know I appear so much wiser, but. You know, I just, I remember, you know, I remember very really distinctly the conversation we had and, and you talked about the centre in Australia and so on, and and the ways of trying to do that. And it was just fantastic to see that, for me, to see what happened yesterday occur here. I mean, did you enjoy yourself yesterday?
1: Oh, enormously. And I remember the conversation. I mean, I, I found out about David through his book, The Dawkins Letters, which when I first saw it, I thought, this is a wonderful book to give to people. And I've been plugging it ever since. And to see that kind of a mind at work that got credibility on the street, so to speak. And so I was very pleased when we met. And I'd been in Australia, invited actually by the leading Australian newspaper to get involved in the debate. But out there I'd met a group of people, and most of them were historians. And that's why it immediately, when when I discovered you were a historian, they'd started this Centre for Public Christianity. And somehow the name resonated and a number of local business people had put their backs behind it and it was really making waves in the culture and I say this to encourage you, because they started like you're starting, they didn't start with premises as good as this, but now they're regularly on television, on radio in Australia and all over the place, their presence is felt, constant newspaper articles and so on. So something about David being a historian and the way he'd used history so effectively in combating uh, Richard Dawkins, I thought I'd mention this to him. So that's really where it came from, David. It was your book and you. Uh And I I think the fact that he is a historian is a tremendous providence of God, to be quite honest, because that resonates within Scotland and is so important in the debate. Okay, Okay, we're going to turn... And yesterday was great. I mean... That was the question you asked yeah. yesterday was very good. And I would like to thank you for the warmth of your welcome and the effort you put into it, It is staggering... And it's a, it's a landmark experience. And to be involved in at the start of something yeah. I, I, is really exciting. And I felt it flowed very well indeed. I think the thing I enjoyed most probably was the question session. But
0: Yes, that was great. <laughs> yeah, the, the, well, actually, that's, I woke up this morning thinking about that question session. So that's why you're doing it again just now. But
1: <laughs> well, I actually love doing this. I, yeah. I'm increasingly doing this, David, yeah. and increasingly trying to encourage. This suggestion came from you. Yeah. And That has fascinated me because I've been doing this increasingly for a very simple reason. Firstly, it seems to me to be biblical, but secondly, watch television news. How many presenters do you have? Two normally. Uh-huh. And it's a dialogue. It attracts people's attention because there's the unpredictable about it. If I preach a sermon to you, I know what I'm going to say. You've no idea what I'm going to say, usually. Um, And I hope I have some idea. But if if there's an element of questioning and dialogue, it makes the thing come alive. And I think you're right. Romans possibly was written that way. In that way. Okay.
0: Let's um, turn to John's gospel. And the way that we are going to do this, uh, I'll read a bit of it. And to be fair to John as well, I I agreed that this wouldn't just be grill John session. So we'll just, you feel free to ask me questions and we'll discuss God's word together. Absolutely. uh, And it may be that anyone here goes, wait a minute, I didn't understand that. That was a lot of rubbish. Please feel free if you want to ask a question as well uh, to do that also. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness but the darkness has not understood it. Let me just pray. Lord... This is your word. We thank you that you have given it to us to teach us. We pray that as we discuss it just now, that you would enable us to know the light shining in the darkness of our own hearts, in the darkness of this world, and that we also may be able to reflect that light and pass it on to others in your name. Amen. John, I'll, I'll start and then you can respond and fire back with things. Um, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Now, we know that the, the Word here is Logos. The Word for Word is Logos. When I met you in uh, your accommodation in Oxford, and your study in Oxford, we discussed a little bit your book about the God's undertaker, Has Science Buried God? And there's an argument in that book, an argument that you mentioned to me, that I found thrilling, and it brought me back to this where you talked about two principles. Now, tell me if I get this wrong. Two principles of science that are axiomatic. One is that we now know that everything contains information. And the other is that you don't get information without someone putting the information in. Information doesn't just self-generate. And when we talked about that, what came to my mind was Genesis 1 and John 1. In the beginning, God created and he spoke. And John 1 in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God He was with God. Through him, all things were made. Is it, is it right to take the understanding that we now have of everything consisting of information in one sense and saying, actually, the Bible was there in advance? The Bible's not a scientific textbook, but can you fit those two things together?
1: Oh, I think so. I think it's one of the most profound things here. I regard Genesis 1 in one sense as unpacking John 1, although Genesis Mm -hmm. 1 came first. But I find with uh, contemporary audiences, it's better to start with John 1 Mm -hmm. because Genesis raises all kinds of additional questions in their mind. But to hone in on this, and the way I put it, I suppose can be illustrated by a little story, if I'm allowed to tell a story, to compress a lot of ideas.
0: You're allowed to tell as many stories as you want.
1: (laughs) I used to work in the University of Wales in Cardiff, and one of my fellow academics is a very eminent professor of astrobiology these days, uh, who used to work with, with Fred Hoyle. And he was taken over to America to appear in one of these creation trials some years ago. Mm -hmm. And he came back and he said, you know, he said, the Christians were very nice to be in America. And the atheists weren't so very nice. But he said, it's a pity they're so naive. I said, who's naive? The atheists or the Christians? He said, the Christians. Oh, I said, why are they naive? Well, he said, "I I hardly like to say because they were so nice to me. He said, they believe the Bible. That's the problem. So I said, this is an atheistic Hindu who has difficulties with evolution, just to explain the complexity of this. And, um, oh, I said, well, actually, I believe the Bible, too. And he said, you're not one of them, are you? (laughs) Well, I said, I don't know. And I can remember he threw me his chalk, and he said, prove it to me. So I went and wrote in the board, um, and God said, let there be light. And he started to laugh. He said, you are one of them. (laughs) He said, look, are you telling me that God is a voice box and lungs like we've got? I said, Chandra, you're being primitive now. This is simple language, but it's actually profounder than you think. Let me put it another way. So underneath on the blackboard I wrote, in the beginning was the word. All things were made by him. And he said, what does that mean? Well, I said, this is a Greek word, logos, from which we get logic, and it, it, it holds a whole spectrum of ideas. The Stoic thinkers used it as the rational principle behind the universe. But it has ideas of command, of logic, of information. He said, What did you say? I said, You heard me. He said, But does the Bible have the idea of information? Well, I said, What do you think? I said, it's even more interesting than that. So I quoted him to put alongside it another statement in Hebrews 11. By faith we understand that the worlds were made by the word of God Mm -hmm. so that what is seen is not made out of what is visible. I said, Chandra, if the New Testament is so primitive as you think it is, how is it that 20 centuries ago they knew about information and that it was invisible Mm -hmm. and he looked at me and he said explain what you mean so I said look the information that's contained in a text is an abstract notion it's carried in the symbols that are on the page Mm -hmm. but it itself is not visible. I like to imagine a, a red Indian conveying information by smoke signals that then translated into radio signals that then uh, broadcast. Information goes from the red Indian to you. But what is it? Yeah. It's invisible. And he looked at me and he said the following words. He said, if the Bible's got the concept of information, I need to change my view of the Bible. I said, you do, Chandra? And then he said, does Sir Fred Hoyle know about this? <laughs> and I said, I don't know. Well, he said, we'd better tell him. And we did. And I had a very lengthy conversation with Fred Hoyle about this. And he said, that goes back to Shakespeare. I said, no, it doesn't. Yeah. It goes back to the Bible. Now, here's the point, and with this I'd stop. The Bible, as you've said, David, and it's an important thing to say. It's not a science textbook. I don't teach algebra in the university from scripture. But it does say some basic things about the physical universe. And those things are relatively few in number, but vastly important. Now, if you ask yourself, what is the most important thing said about God's act of creation and the whole of Scripture in terms of frequency, the answer is obvious. God said, in the beginning was the Word. By faith we understand it was by the Word. That is behind the created universe. There is an intelligent Word. It's tracing it back to that. So my answer to your question is, the Bible got there long before anybody else. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, we are the generation who've lived to see the decoding, and the understanding of DNA. And that's the irony of it all. At the heart Mm -hmm. of every one of the 10 trillion cells in your body, there's the longest word known to humanity. It's 3.7 billion letters long, and all the letters are in the right order. So Mm -hmm. it seems to me there's a terrific resonance between these two things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It it makes enormous sense to me. I mean, what... what
0: what stuns me, I mean, the DNA especially, the, what did you say, 3.7 billion billion, Billion.
1: Billion. Yeah, and you letters know, nine all, knots, you know. All in the right sequence. More just, it's about the Irish national debt. You know, right.
0: That, what... <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs> it's, it's, you wish, you know. <laughs> um,
1: and each human genome is unique yes there are minor variations all over but everyone's unique as far as i understand now, i'm not a biologist yeah. and it's important for me to say that because people say hey you're a mathematician writing about these things i'm not ashamed of that because from darwin to dawkins these people have written for the thinking public so yes. i respond as a member of the thinking public here
0: but i mean you know you just go, again go back to the bible where the psalm tells us we're fearfully and wonderfully made psalm 139 yes. Or I remember when you were debating with Dawkins, you you said that the Bible pointed... There was only two options, either there was a beginning or there wasn't, and the Bible says there was a beginning. In the 20th century, up until um, we discovered the Big Bang, most scientists would have assumed there was no beginning, the Bible was wrong. That's correct. We now turn around and say it's right. I remember Dawkins' response was hilarious. He said, well, there was a 50-50 chance of getting it right.
1: (laughs) That was... was, Yes, that's right. And And on reflection, I don't know whether I said it at that point, it took... Uh, from the, the whole thing wasn't a matter of chance, I and mean, it was took tremendous accumulated scientific evidence for the scientists to change their mind and agree that there was a beginning. And one of the importances of that, David, and I'm glad you raised it, is this. Many people say, of course, the Bible is useless when it comes to the universe, because in science we're used to setting up a theory that makes a prediction, and then you win a Nobel Prize for showing that a prediction comes true. Well, anybody reading scripture could have made a prediction that one day we'd find evidence that there was a beginning you see. So it does cog into history. And that intersection, although it's small, it's very important.
0: Tied in with that, I mean, I I come, I heard a lecture at the University of Dundee by uh, an astrophysicist who was not a Christian, but he was talking about, and it blew my mind about uh, matter and antimatter and dark energy and something else that he says that the whole, what causes the whole universe to hold together. And I spoke to him afterwards and said, you know, Paul says this about Christ, "...for by him all things were created." This is Colossians 1, 16. "...things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together." And that's combined with what we've got in John. It's really saying, to me, God created, God spoke, it came into being, the whole universe came into being. But not only that, it is because of God that it all holds together. So again, there's the Christian doctrine of providence. And now again, am, am, I, am I as a theologian reading too much into that? Or,
1: Well, not at all. I, I, I think this is immensely important that there are two things and not just one. Yeah. Because um, it was Augustine uh, complicated the matter rather a lot and has led many people, to my mind, into confusion. Yeah. Because what do we mean by creation? When the days were where people believed in an eternal universe, and Aristotle dominated European intellectual thought for centuries, people tried to reconcile the Bible with an eternal universe. And so um, Augustine, who was honest enough to see that the Bible said there was a beginning, from a philosophical point of view, he came up with the notion that um, God, if you look at a general concept of creation, you could regard creation as God causing the universe to exist, full stop. Now, that is a very popular notion, even among Christians, that creation simply means God causes it to exist right now, as well as historically in the past. Now, it seems to me that, yes, of course, that is absolutely true. If God didn't cause it to exist, it would cease to exist. In Christ, it is held together. But there seems to be another thing. God caused it to be in the first place. Mm -hmm. And for me, the doctrine of creation is, as I think you were hinting, David, separate from God, the doctrine of providence. And Genesis makes it clear because there's a sequence of creation acts and they stop And God rests. He doesn't rest from the work of redemption. He doesn't rest from the work of holding the universe in existence. But he rests from those initial acts of creating. So there are two things. And they are both predicated of Christ as the word of God. I think, mind, it's worth stepping back just one little bit. Because John's gospel does not start with creation. It starts with God existing and the nature of God. And to my mind, the startling things are the things that we slide over very easily. And the word, the beginning was the word, and the word was God. No, n- that's the third thing that said. Yeah. The second thing that said is the word was with God, and the word was God.
0: Yeah.
1: Now, if you pause and think about that, that raises some very interesting. I, I wonder how you uh, respond to that, David.
0: I was just going to ask you. <laughs> um, I, I think you've got Proverbs 8 here as well, the concept of word and wisdom and what's yes. involved. But I think in the Old Testament, we're, we're now moving into the area of the Trinity, which is another problem for a yes, lot of people. Yes, we are indeed. But I think in the Old Testament, there are enormous hints of the Trinity. Mm. Let us make God in our image. Cannot be God and the angels.
1: Let man in our image. I yes. Think. Make, yeah. ma- sorry, make
0: man in our image. Yes. God says, let let us. Yes. Yes. So there's a plural there, which is not the royal we. I think. It, I think mm. there's there's a hint. There's the um, theophanies, the appearances of God, the angel of the Lord. I have mm. seen the Lord, yes. and so yes. on. There are all these things, and I think the the, the amusing thing is our, our atheist friends say, why do you trust a book that's written by a bunch of illiterate desert shepherds? Which I always find amusing because how do illiterate people write? But the other side of that is, you, right. h- how, do you, how does someone like John, a fisherman, come up with something extraordinary here? Because for me, the Trinitarian teaching here is phenomenal. It's saying, you know, in the beginning is the word. I, I think it's his referring to Jesus. Jesus was with God. Jesus was God. You've, you've obviously got God, Father, and God and Son, and later on in this passage, you will get God, the Spirit. Yeah, the so fas- I see it as Trinitarian.
1: That's right, I do too. But the fascinating thing is you're not told any of that yet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're
1: not told the word is Jesus until very far down this chapter. Yeah. And it seems to me one of the very interesting things to do is to follow the logic of the chapter rather than assuming all that we read backwards into it, yes. to see exactly what it's saying. And I think that's right. Uh, In Genesis, we have, let us make man our own image. We have the spirit of God moved on the waters and so on. We have the indicators on page one that God is not a monolith. Uh One stone, so to speak, to, to transliterate that. And here, it seems to me that something is being indicated that is going to be vastly relevant a little bit further down. Yes. What I, shall I explain a bit yes. what I mean by that? Yes, please do. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And instinctively we say, well, what do you mean God was with God? If the Word was God, you're saying God was with God, if the Word is God as well. Yeah. So what are you saying, really? And that's where many people say, look, this, this, this notion of the Trinity is... Well, the word Trinity doesn't even appear in the Bible. But I think it was Tom Torrance, whom, if I'm not wrong, in his little book on the Trinity, which I found fascinating, said the Trinity is not a Christian formulation. No, it's much more than that. It is the way God has revealed himself. Mm -hmm. In other words, we... Come to our notion of the Trinity, the three, because that is what Scripture actually says. Uh And that seems to me to be immensely important to say to those who say, oh, it's just a word we've invented. But it's a word to cover a biblical concept. Uh Now, perhaps I'm naive, but the way this appeals to me is very simple in one sense. The word was in the beginning, already was, always has existed, the eternal God, the word. The word was with God. That is indicating, at the very least, there is a fellowship here. Mm -hmm. May I put it this way? Because there's a way I find it easy to remember. God is a fellowship. So that when you come down to human beings, the idea is not that God was hard up for friends and he created David Robertson and John Lennox and a few other people, so he'd have somebody to talk to. God is in himself an eternal fellowship. Yes, That's a staggering concept. We are not big enough to be a fellowship in ourselves. That's why I got married. But do you see the point? Yes. Does that that make, or am I becoming a theological heretic here, David? I mean, I I need the theologian to control my Irish imagination, ladies and gentlemen.
0: Well, the Lord gave us imagination, and even the Irish. So, No, if you look further on in the passage, no one has ever seen God, verse 18, but God, the one and only Son, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. He's at the Father's side, verse 14. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, I, I think it's really important what you've said. Um, Donald MacLeod, in his little book on the Trinity, this is the main point he expresses. God is self-existent. God is love. He doesn't create us because he needs someone to love. He loves within himself. <laughs> <laughs> that's So the that idea. the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, God actually is love. And that's the astonishing thing about John 1, that John is coming out with this stuff and saying, this God who created, this God who sustains, this God who is love is the one who came to us. And it's mind-blowing stuff. You know, I mean, that's... Well, I find it just incredible, oh, I,
1: I do too. And I, I think it's something that should generate worship. Absolutely. I mean, what we're really saying is that we need to take all these words seriously and not just assume that we know what they mean. But David, hey, you quoted that verse a bit further down. It says no one has seen God at any time. But you told us a few minutes back that there were people in the Old Testament who'd seen God, Mm -hmm. but nobody's seen him at any time. So the Bible's full of contradictions, isn't it?
0: (laughs) Yes, the Bible is full of apparent contradictions in the same way perhaps you oh, and I you mean
1: like Richard Dawkins, the universe yes. is apparently designed. Yes. For, yeah. I mean,
0: <laughs> apparent contradictions in the sense that if you, if you, if you take things simplistically all the time, yes. you're going to end up with contradictions. Mm-hmm. But so, so often, you know, I mean, I, I just had somebody this week say, look, the Bible is not true. Because it says that Moses died on a mountain, and then it says Moses died in Moriba or somewhere. And for him, that was it. You know, that's it. The Bible's two different things. I said, what if the mountain was in Moriba? Oh, you're saying (laughs) different things from the same perspective. And here, no one has seen God. No, God is unseeable. You cannot see God. He's invisible. He is invisible. He is not material. He is Mm -hmm. not material. He cannot be confined to the created you know, because, again, that's again part of the Hindu concept of, of material, yes, and yes, God yes. is the material. No, we're saying God is invisible. You can't see him. So how can we know God? What if he reveals himself? How does he reveal himself? What if he lets us see? So you have the appearances of the angel, um, but above all, of course, you have an incarnate Christ, yeah. which I but think would is...
1: But would it. you go further than that? In the sense that no one has seen God at any time. The only son has revealed him. Yeah. What were they saying in the Old Testament then?
0: I would say that they were seeing Jesus. Yes. I would say that the Theophanies, particularly when you've so got the Abraham bowing. Are Christophanies. Yeah. Yes. They are appearances yeah. of the second person of the Trinity yes, in the Old yes, Testament. Yes. They are pre, pre incarnation. incarnation, appearance yes. of Christ. Now, okay, that's all heavy theological language, isn't it? But what we're saying is Look, when we're t- we talk about Christmas, which we will, we're not saying that's when Jesus began to exist. We're saying that's when Jesus came to earth. Jesus is the eternal one as well. Mm-hmm. Jesus has no beginning. He that's where the Jehovah's Witnesses have got it wrong. He didn't
1: begin in Bethlehem.
0: Yes, he did not begin in Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. That's what, you know, <laughs> veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate <clears throat> deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, mm-hmm. God with us. That's not... You, you know, We cannot make a more incredible claim than that. And yet, you're a scientist. You believe it. Are, are you
1: compartmentalizing? Not in the slightest. And it, it almost abuses me, as uh, Richard Dawkins mocks and did publicly in Oxford, my belief that Jesus turned water into wine and all this kind of thing. And I, I simply made the point that if he is who he claimed to be God incarnate, these other things are trivial compared with that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's worth dwelling on it because... I think, did I refer to this yesterday, that what John is doing here, when he said all things were made by him, uh, it's actually a Greek word which means all things came to be. Did I talk about that yesterday? A little bit, yeah. That the word already was, the universe came to be. So the universe didn't, uh, God didn't come to be, so he's primary and the universe is derivative. Seems to be one of the main lessons of this. But then it goes on to this statement, which David has put so well just now, that God came to be human. It uses exactly the same term. And that's the awesome message that we'll concentrate upon at Christmas, but I like to do it every day of the year, actually.
0: Yeah, Yeah. it is. I mean, it is, it is incredible. I mean, we are going see my congregation are probably going to say you're going to have to do this because much more because what's a a 30 minute sermon seems like two hours compared with just a conversation. But I, I need to ask you one more thing in terms of this passage. It talks about The light, that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And we're we're kind of jumping a bit, but Christ comes into the world. Christ is God. Christ comes into the world. The, The darkness has not understood it. Let's just skip forward to where we are just now. We, I think, I hope most of us here who are Christians, anyway, have begun to see a little of the glory of Christ. But the darkness has not understood it. There might even be people here who are saying, I just, what are you on about? I don't get this. How do we communicate who Christ is, what he means to us? Because I'm not religious. I believe in Christ. I've noticed I've, that. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, mean, I I follow Christ. You know, yeah. and, and yeah. We, we, people all around us are saying, you're religious, you're religious, you're religious. Even when you, we use terms like Christ, How do we communicate the wonder of who Christ is?
1: Mm. Well, can I just make a little point Um, that's related to this? But what fascinates me about the statement you just quoted, in him was life and that life was the light of men. That is stated before the incarnation. Yeah. And that seems to me to be very important. Life is a light. And you'll see how relevant this is to your question in a moment. And let me put it this way, my scientific hat first of all. Created life is a light. Mm -hmm. And if you try to explain created life without God, you'll end up in the dark. I would want to start there. Mm -hmm. But now the next thing is, as you say, that John wasn't the light. The true light was coming into the world. There was life Life was being a light before the true light came into the world, because this is in historical sequence, you'll notice, from creation to John to Jesus. But now he is the light of the world coming into the world. And your question is, in the dark, how do we shine the light? Mm -hmm. And I feel that the way we shine it, is to, of course, embody in our lives the teaching of the Lord Jesus, but constantly to be explaining what it is all about in words that people can understand. I mean, some of the concepts in this very chapter are very transferable. You can explain them to people. What I think David needs to happen is we stop being ashamed of what we believe. hmm because once people stop being ashamed of it and see how big the message is, they can't help themselves talking about it. I believe, you see, ladies and gentlemen, that I've got something far better than anything any other philosophy offers because it makes far more sense. And therefore, I want to get it out to people. But what encourages me about this is that... The Lord comes into the world who's part of that great fellowship which is is God. And to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God, something they weren't by nature. They're creatures of God, but they weren't children of God. So this is fantastic. What does it mean? The fellowship that is God has extended itself so that we can share that life. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me this is the key to it. Mm -hmm. The word has become flesh, and he's given his life for us so that we can be forgiven, receive that life, and become part of God's family as his children, and therefore embody the same life Mm -hmm. so that we can let that light shine. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? And I, I suppose on the practical level, I started small, one-on-one, just sharing the little bits I knew. And when people ask questions, giving the books and starting where people are at. One of the difficulties is we want to know all the answers before we start. If you do that, you'll never start. Yeah.
0: You'll never get anywhere because, and, and I love what you're saying here, going back, you know, this, the light shines in the darkness. Life and light. We had that for yesterday on the conference paper. Life and light to all he brings. I think we need to look at our fellow human beings made in the image of God. You're here, you're maybe not a Christian. You're made in the image of God. You're meant to have life, you're meant to have light. Mm. And I think what happens throughout us throughout our life is this darkness comes. We're spiritually dead, and there's a darkness a shadow Mm. that comes over us. And ultimately, the shadow of death is, is of course, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That's right. And and ultimately, I guess, when we die, and we're talking about hell, we're saying that's ultimate darkness, ultimate. No life, no light. Right now, we've got life and light, and it's maybe not the best quote in the world, to quote a a boy band, but, um, relight my fire, or Lulu. (laughs) You know, there's a sense in which that's what we're saying as Christians: that Christ comes and as the light, He relights us. You know, we are we are we are dead; we're, we're just a smouldering wreck. And Christ comes and gives us light, and Christ renews us. And even I mean, we we've, we've hardly even begun to delve into this passage about the world not recognizing Him and everything else. But isn't it fantastic that you, John, a you know professor at Oxford, are d- discussing? a fisherman from Israel 2,000 years ago, something that he wrote... And we're just saying we're just scratching the surface. Yeah, but
1: that's the evidence that God is behind it. Yes, exactly. Uh, you see, in the end, ladies and gentlemen, if you ask me why do I believe in inspiration of scripture, I think there are lots of extraneous arguments. But in the end, if Scripture doesn't speak with the authentic word of God, I'm not interested in yeah, it. Absolutely. It authenticates itself. And one thing about the darkness, David, the, the the tragedy of the darkness is that people have a dark view of God. Yes. Yeah. They think God is dark, that he's against fun, he's against joy, he's against... Yes. Well, I noticed God invented all the colours in the rainbow, and nobody ever has invented a new one.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> it, it isn't God that's taken the colour out of light, it's sin. Yes, yeah. And the Absolutely. great inversion in people's mind is, if we could only get rid of God, we get colour.
0: No, you get darkness.
1: You get darkness.
0: John, that is a, a great way to finish. Um, I'm going to ask David Miller if he'll come and pray for us as a, a people. Um, maybe Stephen can extend the mic here for, for David. Uh, thank you so much. We um, will finish with, with prayer and singing. Um, uh, just, You're right. The only response is praise. We worship the God of light and of color. Thank you very much.